Welcome everybody to another episode of Science Stories. Today I'm going to be talking with Adrián Carlos Miguel Chavini, who is a professor from the Instituto de Ciencias Polares, Ambiente y Recursos Naturales from the Universidad of Tierra del Fuego in Ushuaia, Argentina. Dr. Chavini, how are you doing? Hi, I am also researcher of our main research agency, which is called by this uh, nickname, CONICET. And I'm doing fine, as I mentioned before. Uh, this is a very sad day because our National Congress is voting a law that delivers um, legislative faculties to the president, which is uh, more or less equivalent to closing the Congress. Therefore, it's a very, very sad day for many people that work under the umbrella of the national state, like ourselves that work in the research agency, the federal research agency, or in the university. No, this is not the best day. I'm sorry you guys are going through this. What what will it imply for you on, on a daily basis? What what changes are going to come because of this? Well, the future is quite uncertain today because the national government taught uh, CONICET and the universities that they will have the same budget as the last year, but without any correction by inflation. The last year inflation was around 200%. So you can imagine what you can do with a budget approved in the beginning of the past year, translated automatically to this year and without any correction of inflation. In the case of CONICET, the numbers made by the authorities tell us that the CONICET will survive until June. In, with the payment of salaries, and uh, we don't know how much we can uh, keep open our building, research building, because the gas and light and water is being uh, increasing in price over the last two months. So we don't know how will be the last, the last price, no, the the late price. Yeah, yeah. So the these days are of really uncertainty for the the science in Argentina. Yeah, I imagine. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this on such an uncertain times. I really, really appreciate it. Where are you right now? I live in Ushuaia, which is a city located in the southernmost tip of South America. If you watch a map of South America, you will realize that it more or less has a triangular shape. I am in the southern extreme of this triangle that represents South America. So you're right next to the, the famous end of the world lighthouse? Well, the, the end of the world lighthouse was a novel written by Jules Verne. Yeah. For this, for this novel, he inspired in a lighthouse located in Staten Island. Mm -hmm. you know, it's the same name like this, the very well-known Staten Island of New York. Dr. Chavini, you, you work a lot with ecology and a lot of human and wildlife conflict. Today, I think we, we're going to... There's so many topics that we can talk about, but I, I want to focus on, on three different species that, that may be a good start to explain what's going on down there in Tierra del Fuego. I want to talk about guanacos, 
I want to talk about beavers and I want to talk about dogs. Is that okay? Yes, yes. Okay. So you recently wrote a letter about the translocation of Guanacos in Argentina and you raised some ethical and scientific concerns around the translocation of these Guanacos. Do you mind explaining what's going on? Yes, yeah, sure. The issue is is the work of uh, some non-governmental organizations that start working in conservation of biodiversity in a good way. But at some point, these organizations become more market-driven organizations than organizations based on conservation, which is itself based on science. So at some point, if you understand that the Guanaco was the, the largest herbivore in South America for thousands of years and uh, was distributed originally all over the Indian range from Peru to southern extreme of Chile and Argentina, but also occupying most of the Argentine surface, continental Argentina today. But in, with the habitat fragmentation and cattle and, and grazing and the harvest of, of vegetables, the Guanaco range became to be constrained and restricted. Nowadays, the Guanaco is, the main population of Guanaco is located in Patagonia, which is uh, the, the southern extreme of South America. And there are isolated populations all over the Andean range up to Peru and in some places like Cordoba or, or a little bit north. And uh, at some point, this NGO proposed to translocate a group of Guanacos from the southern distribution of Guanacos to a place located north to Argentina which is located very close to Paraguay and Brazil, which would be representing a movement of more than 2,000 kilometers in a, a, um, a movement never uh, accomplished by a wild animal by itself. At the first glance, one may think, oh, this is good to bring back Guanacos where they lived before. Yeah, at, at the first glance, it may look reasonable, but we raise several concerns. First of all, that Guanacos would be translated without sanitary measurements. Measure, sorry. That would mean that if animals travel with their parasites and diseases, they can deliver parasites and diseases to this place, to this new place, or the place they used to live before. Mm -hmm. But if we go to historical and archaeological records, there is no evidence that Guanacos inhabited this, this uh, dry part of the Chaco environment, which is uh, one of the largest biomes of South America. It's a dry forest that occupies Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, Bolivia, etc. It's a very large ecosystem. So there is no no record of, of Guanacos living there. This NGO had an agreement to manage a very large area as a national park. In that sense, they think that bringing the Guanacos back between quotes to this place, they would restore the environment. 
And this idea has several flaws. Among several of them is you can't think that simply bringing back an animal to an environment that was deeply transformed by man and by nature itself, it will serve the same ecosystem services that they were delivered by Guanacos thousands or hundreds of years ago. This is false. Of course. The whole environment changed by natural reasons and by man-made reasons. So there's no reason in, in, in translocating an animal like this for that reason. What is being thought as a trans, as a restoration, in fact, is an experiment that has not been proved to be successful and has several risks. These are the risks that we uh, try to bring to the front with this letter we, we wrote. So there are no prior studies that support this translocation? No, there were some references of uh, the first explorers that used to travel this area, and you need to go back to the 18th century for that, 19th century, early 19th century, that they saw that they observed animals. But there are no practical reasons to, to, to um, affirm that Guanacos were living there in a very common way. And there are many other issues around that. The original plan was to translocate the Guanacos to uh, this national park. But in the meantime, they brought the Guanacos to a private reserve located in the province of La Pampa, about midway between southern Patagonia and uh, the, the, the national reserve which was supposed to be the last destination. And they delivered the Guanacos there without a prior study uh, on what they will do in this uh, private reserve, which is a provincial reserve. Mm-hmm. But in this provincial reserve, there are exotic animals like red deer and uh, boar, and which can compete directly with the Guanaco for food and which can they trans- transport diseases among the herbivores? Because when they share, you, you share food with yeah, other yeah. animals, you are able to get the diseases or parasites mm-hmm. they are bringing to the environment. So nothing, nothing of this was uh, explored before. And actually what happened, and we knew, not officially, of course, but by rangers that are living there, as that many Guanacos escaped the reserve and were subject to poaching by people living close to the reserve. So in the, at the end, you transform an, oper, an, an apparent translocation operation in uh, what is called a scene, no? Like yeah. a, a bath scene, yeah. a place where you draw water and goes by the sink. Well, mm-hmm. this becomes a sink. Yeah. And uh, there is no transparency in the information delivered by the NGO. They are very powerful in terms of money because they come from the people that uh, have Patagonia, the outdoor government Patagonia. Yeah. So they have a lot of money. And with money, you can do a lot of things. Sometimes you can do good things and some other time unthinked. Dr. Shaini, how is the population of the Guanacos in Patagonia? Well, the, popul- the population of Guanacos in Patagonia is doing quite well. Actually, it's the largest 
population bulk in the world. Mm -hmm. The Guanaco population was reduced about 40 years ago due to the overgrazing produced by the, the sheep extensive ranching system and by hunting produced by people. Mm -hmm. uh, but after the 1991 year, the Hudson volcano erupted in southern Chile and uh, covered almost all the southern Patagonia with a thick layer of ash. This uh, produced the, aban the abandonment of the ranches by producers because they had no way to sustain the sheep. And these abandoned ranches produced the increase in the guanaco populations as well as the increase in the puma population because there were more guanacos, more pumas. And this produced the increase in the guanaco numbers over the last 30 years, which are now in a very we would say healthy population, but at the same time, the conditions, the environmental conditions in Patagonia uh, changed a lot. Essentially, winds are stronger, temperatures are rising, and rains are being reduced. For that reason, the vegetation is growing less and less in Patagonia. And uh, if you came by the early 19th century, you probably found some, some ranches with one or maybe even two sheep per hectare no? as a carrying capacity. Today, you find places in continental Patagonia where you need to put together 10 hectares to raise a sheep. So the, the capacity of the environment to sustain grazing has been reduced deeply. And the sheep industry tries to survive by itself in, in this uh, environment and change a lot. And for that reason, ranchers used to blame the guanaco numbers for the reduction in the um, grazing that can sustain sheep. You know? mm -hmm. so it's a matter, of, a matter of competition. Yeah, that's, that, that's the conflict then. The, the, the it's conflict, a conflict, yeah. yes. The conflict yes, is yes. the competition for between the guanaco and the livestock for who forages the few resources there are, right? Yes, yes, but this is not this is not uh, happening that in all over Patagonia. Mm -hmm. In some places you may have competition, in some other places the guanaco eats species that are not being eaten by the sheep, so they not, don't compete. Mm. And, for, and the way that the ranching ranching agencies used to measure uh, the vegetation used by sheep has nothing to do with what is being used by guanaco. So there is an apparent competition that can be true in some places, but in my opinion and the opinion of several colleagues all over Patagonia, what is being uh, worse is the global warming that is being reducing the capacity of Patagonia to produce vegetation to sustain grazing, either domestic or wild. No? Dr. Shavini, Tierra del Fuego or, or the Patagonia region has a big problem with invasive species. And I can think of some examples as the beavers and the rabbits, for example. My question before, before we analyze any particular case is, are there any particular biological or historical reasons why invasive species are such a problem in that area? Yes, 
the 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 fact is that Tierra del Fuego is an island. Mm-hmm. It's a large island, very large. It's about more than forty thousand kilometers at least in the Argentinian side. And islands used to be less diverse than the main continents. You you know that the the term island or main continent is just a matter of relative size. Yeah. Um, a continent is an island, actually, almost an island, because yeah. it's, it's isolated from the surroundings in some respect. It's more difficult to think in an island like, for example, Europa, Europe and Asia, but if you think Africa is a large island, North America can be also South America. But Tierra del Fuego is an island located in the southern extreme, which is separated from the main continent since the last glaciation, when the Magellan Strait opened and allow the circulation of water from the Pacific to the Atlantic. So islands have several conditions that um, may favor the spread of an exotic species that can become invasive. Usually islands has less species than what is called the main continent, and this diversity lowers more and more as you are more away from the continent because they are the species that mate to the island are less and less. It just depends on the size of the island and how far the island is from the main continent. In our case, the island is very, very close to the continent, but there are several uh, things that may lack on an island, and they were lacking in Tierra del Fuego, which are large herbivores, which are only the guanaco, the mid-sized herbivores, which can be comprised, for example, like hares or rabbits, species like that, there were not uh, mid-sized herbivores, mm-hmm. and there were few small herbivores. And moreover, they were there were no large predators. The only terrestrial predator known to live in Tierra del Fuego after the last glaciation was the culpeo fox, which is a large red fox which lives also in, in continental Patagonia, but was the only one able to cross the, the Magellan Strait or to cross by the ice bridges that were existing during the glass, dust glaciation. And in Patagonia, you have the puma, and you have some other animals related to to the mastelids, like uh, skunks and things like that. Well, mm-hmm. in Tierra del Fuego, you only had the culpeo. So you don't have predators large terrestrial predators, you don't have mid-sized herbivores. So every animal that you bring to the island that performs this function in an ecosystem, being either a herbivore or a predator, finds a lot of animals to, to animals or food to, to, to live over. You know? mm-hmm. For example, uh, when they brought the beaver to Tierra del Fuego in the 46, to sustain an apparent full market, there were no predators. There were no bears, no wolves, no yeah. lynx. So the animal found itself without the pressure that is exerted by the predators in your natural environment. You have a lot of food because the only large herbivore was the guanaco, and there were no other mid-sized herbivores that may compete with you for food. Yeah. So you have Plenty of food, lack of predators is the, and few people living to hunt or trying to produce food. So it's a perfect cocktail for an invasion to occur. 
And that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Dr. Shavini, let's do our first break and then we come back and we talk about beavers, rabbits, and dogs. Okay. All right. Let's see the songs you picked. So, Dr. Shavini, we're listening right now to Don't Give Up by Peter Gabriel. And before the break, we were listening to Zona de Promesas by Mercedes Sosa and Gustavo Cerati. Two beautiful songs. Why did you choose these songs? Well, Zona, Zona de Promesas is a song written by, by um, Gustavo Cerati. And Mercedes Sosa was a folk singer very well known in Argentina. She was prosecuted by the last dictatorship we suffered in Argentina in the 70s, 80s. And she she was was forced to leave the country and come back later. And this is the last record she made uh, before she died. Wow. And in this record, he, she brought together many, many respected musicians, among others, uh, Gustavo Cerati, And both of them are not any longer physically with us, but they had a very, very nice voice. And, and Gustavo Cerati was a very, very good musician. Yeah, a poet. And right? this, 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 this song speaks about uh, somebody that is being disappointed 
by the failures of the life and looks for advice to to his mother. You know? That's a very nice song. Mm -hmm. And don't give up. And don't give up is uh, is from the mid eighties, eighty seven is if I if I remember very well. Is from Peter Gabriel, which is one of the best musicians I've known in my life. Um, it's a song made in the mid eighties, I think, when it, it tells about somebody that tells to, to his friends and loves, don't give up, please keep fighting. You must put in the context of the Cold War, which was ending, and the, the war by those times were were in a more or less in the danger of becoming a nuclear war at any time mm -hmm. in around the mid 80s but after that the the berlin wall collapsing and, and the, all this idea of two wars colliding was more or less uh, abandoned no? but by that time uh, and, and and for my opinion this the, the record of this song which is called so is the, the probably the best record that peter gabriel made no? wow It was very difficult to identify four songs because I, I hear a lot of music for many years. Yeah, my guests always say that the hardest part, part of the podcast is picking the songs they're going to come and go with. So when we talk about invasive species, uh, one example that comes to mind is the case of the rabbit. And historically, there have been some unusual, I would say unusual or interesting efforts to eradicate them. And one of them, for example, was introducing foxes so that they would eat the rabbits and, and try to, to fight the population. But another example and another method scientists came up with was using a virus in order to kill the invasive rabbit. Do, do you mind telling that story, please? I think it's really interesting. Yes. Well, the rabbit is another example of an exotic species being brought by people all over the world. In the late 1800s, 19th century, you know that people were traveling by ship, mm -hmm. either sail, big sail ships or later in the 19th century, the steamships. And there, many of these sailors were exploring uh, new places of the world which were never described before. And one of the main problems of sailing for months and months was to have fresh food. You, know? you can uh, supplement that with dry meat, for example, like the charqui or things like that, but uh, you were, can collect eggs of seabirds and some other animals all over your travel. But what people discovered very quickly is that if they brought goats or rabbits or sheep, and brought them to an island, in the future, when they came back again to this place, they would find these animals surviving and thriving and collecting animals from the from the wild. Mm -hmm. This was made with uh, rabbits. Yeah, Rabbits were brought here by the first sailors, which were coming a year after, after to look for foods, sealers, whalers. Well, this was this these were the first introductions in in Tierra del Fuego but in the about the 1936 if i remember well rabbits were brought to El Porvenir which is a, a location in the Chilean part of Tierra del Fuego the idea was to produce meat and fur yeah. a very good idea in few years 
people realized that the rabbits were destroying the soil, destroying the soil because they excavate, they dig, and they eat mm-hmm. vegetable material. And uh, they realized that there was a nuisance. They were destroying the soil all over the island. Then somebody thought that the way they can bring the gray fox from continental Patagonia to fight against the rabbit. So they brought the gray fox. You know? Then the gray fox hunted and chased the more idiot rabbits, and the clever one survived. <laughs> so it was not enough. Yeah. <laughs> and later in the 60s, it was discovered that there is a rabbit living in the northern part of Argentina, and of the genus Silvilagos, is the name is Tapeti or or rabbit of the of the forest, and they understood that they had a um, a very specific virus, very lethal to these rabbits. So they introduced the virus to this rabbit here, and it proved to be very effective. And the virus lasted about thirty or forty years to to lower the population of rabbits to the lowest levels and almost disappeared from Tierra del Fuego. But there are still some pockets here in the Ushuaia city, in the National Park. And by the time the lighthouse was uh, brought to Staten Island, the sailors also brought rabbits there for surviving. And there are still rabbits there, but there are isolated places with rabbits. So it's an it's a, a history of uh, failed control measures. Yeah. So this virus is called uh, myxomatosis, something like that. And yes. it's super specific. It attacks only the invasive rabbit, and it does not kill the the local rabbits. So it's a it's no. A, there are no local. There are no ah, local okay. rabbits. Okay. So for for some biological reasons, this virus is really specific to the rabbits. Oh, okay. No. So it, and the only rabbit you can find locally is in the northern part of Argentina, where it is original. Okay, so there is no, or there seems to be no side effect or danger of releasing this virus in the population. It would not affect other no, animals. No, no, it's very specific. It's very specific. Actually, the, the rabbits from the north, the tapeti, uh, has this virus as endemic. Yeah. When a virus becomes endemic, the population of the species survives with the virus, which circulates in the population and can affect some individuals and some others not because the building of their own resistance already the, the species no wow or so they're already building resistance to that virus yes wow and that's that's one of the problems of this virus it's very specific it's very good but at the long time it produces resistance mm-hmm. as happened here yeah yeah no, some rabbits build resistance and now we don't know because the myxomatosis is not being used today to control rabbits in Argentina, and they can build resistance in the long term. Yeah, it's one of the problems of of this biological control. And and talking about adaptations, I'm gonna jump to the beavers because I I really like your study in which you find that areas where beavers were historically trapped or or hunted compared to areas where beavers were not hunted, they have different traits of life that are really different. For example, they have shorter life expectancy, they have shorter generation time, they have advanced age at first reproduction. So it seems that what, wherever they are hunted, they live shorter and faster lives. That's true. That's a common reaction in populations 
uh, or in the species, sorry, that uh, suffer mortality, you know, either natural or human-induced, like for the hunting. In, in the life of an individual, in ourselves, there is a trade-off in, in using the energy you, you have. All the food you have is to build energy. So this energy is being used to grow during the times we grow in size, no, mm-hmm. and weight sometimes, yeah. and to build tissues, all that we are. But at some point you need to produce offspring. And producing offspring is a very, very uh, dem- energy demanding activity. So it is not the same for a species to breed earlier or later than to survive many years is in, in usually in this kind of mammals like the beaver which it's a rodent but it's not a rodent like the rodents we know like rats or mouse for example yeah in, in being in a continuous is more like an elephant than a rat no? yeah. um, there is a, a benefit in living a long time and produce offsprings late in the life because you acquire experience, you can take care of the of the kids in a better way. If you breed earlier, there is a risk you are not experienced, you are not producing the lot of of uh, of uh, eggs and sperm that you need to produce, and it's better in in evolutionary terms to delay breeding to later years so you can produce less kids but better kids yeah no but what happens when you induce mortality is that the population can react as happened in beavers breeding earlier at the expense of living less i see it's like the, the population reacts to this um reduction in survivorship that will happen because you're hunting them breeding earlier as a way of compensate this mortality induced by humans no it's, it's very common in in, in animal populations no it's, it's not it's not exclusive of beavers no does that mean that the beaver population is eventually going to disappear because of this or not necessarily no, no, the, no, because the the animals find a lot of places and they still have no predators almost here. The, it, beavers are territorial animals that occupy uh, a place that you can roughly say uh, around one kilometer around the, where the dam is built and the lodge is built and don't, then you can't have many beavers living all over a stream because somebody else will come and kick you off. And if you go upstream, somebody else also will kick you from the stream and so on. So there is territoriality in these animals that in some way control the, the population. And moreover, the beaver mortality is very high in the first year of life. It's very high. It's more or less half of the kids that born do not make to the first year. No? But uh, usually they breed at three, four years of age because beavers live in what, it, what, they are, what is called family groups. Yeah. A family group is a pair of adults that give birth. The kids of this season, the kids of the previous season, and even young animals from the second previous season. 
all they live together. And at some point, the parents kick off the, the late guys, you know, yeah. the, the yeah. grown yeah. guys, yeah. They go find your life. And they must find a place to settle in a territorial world and to find a mate. And this is also a very demanding uh, activity for the beavers. And, and uh, what is happening when you hunt beavers, and we, we figured out this, comparing beavers removed from areas with a long history of, of trapping, and comparing them with animals coming from places where these animals were never hunted. So they were living in a quiet world, let's say. No? And beavers are considered uh, engineering species in, in the sense that they, they, are, they have a really... They have a high potential to transform the landscape they live in. Are they are they doing that in Patagonia as well, or down there in Tierra del Fuego? Yes, the main difference with uh, the beavers living here in South and South America and in in the North America or in Europe, there are two species of beavers native from Europe and from North America, is that the, they they do the same than they do here. But the difference is that. In North America, they feed on species that grow again. They regrow again and again and again, like willows, for example, something that we don't have here. The forest in, in Tierra del Fuego is not adapted to the recurrent cutting of trees by the beavers. So in most of the cases when the beavers cut down a tree, this tree is dead and it's not being replaced by the same tree regrowing like it happens in the Northern Hemisphere. So in the Northern Hemisphere, beavers cut the trees and they go to the same place the next year and and harvest the same trees that are regrowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This But is not happening here. I see. For that reason, what beavers produce in Tierra del Fuego is a permanent scar in the landscape that is never recovered again. Or it takes tens of years to recover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So they are a real problem, a, a big problem for the forest yes. down there. Yeah. Yes, yes. And then, Dr. Shavini, finally, another issue that I was surprised, I was really surprised to find out reading your literature was the problems with feral dogs that you have in, in Ushuaia. It's crazy. But before you start that, can you explain to the audience what a capture, mark, recapture experiment is, please? Well, if you are called as a biologist and somebody tells you, Tell me how many animals are out there. Somebody may think, okay, I will run over a, a road, for example, count the amount of animals I watch at both sides of the road, and then extrapolate to the rest of the area I didn't survey. Mm -hmm. This is a common procedure. Sample a piece of the reality and extrapolate to the rest of the universe. This suppose. Uh, the, or the assumption is that you detect all the animals that you are supposed to count. And this is not true. For many reasons, you never see all the animals that you, you are supposed to detect. Of course, yeah. It's... This, these reasons can be time of the day, the weather, the exposure of the animal that can be hiding behind a bush, for example. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe you go in, in a survey, count 10 animals in a sample, and you say, okay, me, my sample has 10 animals. This is all the animals that are in the sample. This is rarely met. This is rarely accomplished. You need to account for the detection probability. 
So what mark recapture techniques do is they allow you to estimate which is the detection probability of the animals. No? And you go a first, first sampling occasion and you capture all the animals you can and mark all of them. Mm -hmm. Then you release them back to the wild. And you can, in a second capture occasion, and capture all the animals you can. Some of them will be marked from the first occasion. Some others will be without a mark. Yeah. Because you didn't capture uh, before. Of course. And then you can remark them. And then you can have another and, and more occasions, capture occasions, and then you build what is called uh, detection history. When each individual that was captured, you know when, when it was captured or recaptured. For example, the dog A was never captured uh, in before the last occasion, or this dog was captured all the occasions, or this dog was captured the second and the fourth occasion, but not the one and the, the first and the third, blah, blah, blah. Then you, with, with this uh, detection history information, you go and use a program that captures, that, sorry, that estimates which is the probability that you have uh, an X number of animals if you have this detection history. More important, it uh, assesses which is the probability of you didn't detect an animal, which are the most important, important those that you never captured before, yeah. you know, or you never captured. It's a mathematical trick delivered yes. from the probabilities analysis. Yeah, so from, from some calculations between the ones that, how many you capture and how many you recapture, you can estimate the total population of, the total yes. population, I would say, yeah. So what's going on with, with the feral dogs in Ushuaia? Well, in, in, in all Tierra del Fuego. In all Tierra del uh, Fuego, yeah, sorry. Um, I mean, what, what happened is that the, the main problem is the lack of, of good keeping of, of pets by the people. Mm -hmm. The people love to have dogs, but it's very common in Argentina to leave the dog on the streets for part of whole, the whole day. So these dogs are roaming freely on the city, and at some point they start to explore out of the city. And this exploration can mean that the dog goes by the day and returns by night to the house because they know they have food and shelter for sleep. No, but at some point these dogs never come back, and they become not I wouldn't I wouldn't say wild, but become uh, stray. Straight dogs, not yeah. not supervised is a technical term, and these dogs knows the human because they had relation with the human. They know that the human provides food and shelter, but they are now living in the wild. At some points, these dogs have uh, offsprings, mm -hmm. and these new dogs are now are now uh, having birth in, in the landscape. They don't know the human being. They are not socialized by ourselves, you know that the, the most important period of time in the life of a domestic dog is the first months of life because they interact with, with us, they understand that we are not pets, they understand that we are not a danger, they know how to socialize. In the wild, the dogs that are born in the wild, 
don't know the human being. Mm -hmm. They have no idea what it is. And now we are having a serious problem with the feral dogs in the wild, in the rural area, because we are having um, pups being born in the wild and several generations already. No? And we are working with ranches that are producing sheep. The sheep production in Tierra del Fuego was being reduced to the half in the last 20 years, half of the heads. And uh, many ranches abandoned the sheep rearing and transformed the ranch to cattle rearing, not sheep rearing, thinking that as the cows are a larger animal, they will be less vulnerable to attacks by dog, but this is not the case. They are attacking young cows even now. Wow. And um, they are eating wildlife, of course. They are eating guanacos, birds, whatever. And they are a reservoir for, for diseases and parasites yeah, yeah, yeah. because they have no health care. No. Wow. So this is a very um, big problem, which is exacerbated by the existence of a large patch of forest in the southern and the middle part of the island. The forest is a place for refuge for them. You know? They hide in the forest, they have protection from the environment, from the winter, and for them it's a very good uh, place. You know? Wow, wow. And what what are you guys doing about it? I, I, I imagine, are you trying to fix them, kill them, castrate them? What is the, what, is, what are the measures you're trying to do to avoid this? Well, we are working now with ranchers which are using what they are called the liftop protection dogs. Liftop protection dogs are the oldest, probably the oldest working dog in the human history. And there are the most numerous working dogs. No? More numerous than any other thing, more than the sheep dogs. No? Liftop protection dogs were produced in, the, in, in Europe, in Central Europe, East, in Western Asia, as a way to fight against the predation by wolves and bears. Mm -hmm. you know? They were, they are produced for thousands of years, essentially for small, small size ranches that have maybe a hundred sheep, 200 sheep, and one or two dogs. You know, the sheep that are brought from the shed during the morning and yeah. they graze all the day and they bring back to the shed by night. Well, this is the, the origin of the leaves of protection dog. Now they are being used in a very, very low input system, extensive grazing system, where a dog can protect 300 sheep, 500 sheep sometimes. They can protect several kilo, uh, square kilometers around in a very good way. You know? So it's the best tool we have today for, for control the, the, the predation by feral dogs. You know? and, and they are even being used in Patagonia for protecting sheep against pumas, for example. Nice. What's the name of the breed again, please? Well, there are several breeds. They're called livestock protection dogs. Okay. Uh, you have uh, the Marema is one of the classical uh, breeds. Uh, also the, the Pirine Shephair. Mm. And there also the Kangal, which is from Turkey, this area. But it's a more dangerous breed because it's very large and can be very aggressive against people. No? Mm. But there are several, several breeds all over the world. As I told you, it's the most abundant working dog in the world. All, wow. this, all the breeds of list of protected dogs. Wow. Dr. Shavini, let's do our last break. And then when we come back, I want you to tell me some stories. I, I know you have 
really interesting anecdotes. One of them even involves Leonardo DiCaprio, if I'm not mistaken. And one of them even involves the president of Argentina. So let's do our, our last break and then we'll, we come back with those amazing stories. All right. So right now we're listening to Wild Theme by Mark Knopfler. And before the break, we were listening to One Day Like This by Elbow. Is there any particular reason you picked these songs? Well, uh, Wild Theme, the, the one from Mark Knopfler. Mark Knopfler is one of the best guitar players for me in the world. And uh, actually... Uh, if I if I was born again, I would like to be almost something like close, very close, and maybe the one percent as Marnoffler playing guitar. It's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing guitar. He can can visit many many genres, and he's very very good in this kind of genre. And he made a, the, um, the soundtrack for a movie called Local Hero. It's from the eighties. It's a guy that. that belongs to an oil company that goes to Scotland to buy an entire village. You know, it's like, I will whip up the village to put an oil company there, but at the end, things doesn't go as expected. Mm -hmm. But going back to the, the, his guitar is amazing. He, he, Mm -hmm. and for me, he's one of the best guitar players in the world, no? Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, one day like this is, it's it's a, a song from a group called Elbow, um, from from England, um, it's a very very nice group. I discovered um, actually listening to YouTube. They introduced this this um, this song as as, a, as the previous set of of a concert they gave in like 15 years ago. Then I discovered this song. I said, "Who are these guys?" And they are very nice. I recommend very good group called elbow the guy is uh, is, uh, if 
if you look at the guy, the main character of the band, you figure him as a butcher, you know? He's yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> behind the desk, cutting pieces of meat, but he's a very good singer, really. I like it very much. It's, it's a very common song. It's a one day like this. It's a, it's a very simple guy, but celebrates the life from a, as, as, as a, one day like this is all that means for me, you know? Mm -hmm. I like it very much. Dr. Chavini, I'll go straight into it. Is it true that you toured Leonardo DiCaprio? Well, this is um, half true. Half true. Half true. What's the story? What, what happened is in the, that the year 2015, Leonardo DiCaprio was filming... Uh, the Revenant. The Revenant. And they found themselves without the snow they needed to to film the last sense of the movie when when he he goes after Tom Hardy and finish uh, killing him on a river yeah, this yeah, is yeah. The, the, the last part of the movie the last yeah. sense the last five minutes and uh, where they were looking for places where film and they ended up here in Ushuaia well they filmed they filmed uh, the last part of the revenant and they they were uh, also making material for the documentary that Leonardo DiCaprio released uh, a couple of years later, which is Before It's Too Late. I don't remember the, the name in English of the documentary. But in Spanish, it's Antes Que Sea Tarde. Yeah. And the documentary speaks about the, the, the global warming. So a friend of mine, geologist, was with him. They contacted him to make an interview, and he called me in the... In the, in the, by the, by noon, look, I am with Leonardo DiCaprio. He wants to talk with a biologist. Well, I was there and I was uh, sailing with him for three hours on board a tour vessel, and talking about talking with him about different issues related to nature of the fuego, the global warming, and how the global warming can affect the the the, the landscape and biodiversity here. So I spent three hours with Leonardo DiCaprio. He was a very simple man to talk with, not nothing very special. I mean, you were talking with somebody else, no, nothing special. Nothing special. Uh, yes, yes, was was a nice experience. Nice. And then, is it also true that you played music with an Argentinian president once? Oh yes, 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 yes. As that was true, we were here in Ushuaia. We were in a singing in a choir, you know, in a in an amateur choir with many many other people. And someday uh, there was a, a, a summit of presidents in a very nice hotel here, in, close to Ushuaia, very very close to Ushuaia. And supposedly we we needed to to, to sing something. I don't remember what. What, uh, what what was what we were singing uh, one of the songs was a carnavalito it's an it's a music very very common and known from the northern part of Argentina and one of the instruments that was being played is uh, what is called the caja bagualera which is a small drum very small drum about this size with a small stick and I was I was playing that and at the some in, in, in a moment where the presidents were leaving, meeting, I don't remember now. 
and the president Menem, who was the president by that time, the president of Argentina, he was passing by and came to us. And he came in the middle of us. So I, I, I brought, I gave to deliver to him the, the, the drum and he started to play the drum. I, I, there was a, a, a film, but I couldn't find it in, in the, in YouTube. <laughs> no. <laughs> so you, 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 you've been alongside Oscar winners and presidents. You're, you're a big deal. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's what's happening when you live in a place like Ushuaia. You yeah. can find a lot of different people. It's a very attractive <laughs> place. <laughs> Dr. Shavini, thank you so much for being part of Science Stories. Did you have a good time? Yes, yes, yes. Have a good time. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to all the listeners for, being, for listening to Science Stories. Well, I hope they enjoyed that. I'm sure they did. Wow. Wow. Wow.